Hello, and welcome to episode 86 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. I will start with a question. Does a MedTech product have to have artificial intelligence as a direct component to be considered enhanced by AI? The answer is no. AI can contribute to the success of a product or service in many ways. Today we continue with the subject of artificial intelligence. What is different is that we approach the subject from the view of a company that helps medtech companies create AI-based software that assists their products in one of three ways. Our guest today is Moshe Safran, PhD, CEO of RSIP USA. Moshe and his team have been helping companies for years with their AI-related challenges. By the end of this podcast, we should have you thinking outside the box in terms of how AI works with and can support products. Links to Moshe and RSIP will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening in today. Now, if you like this podcast, please refer it to a friend simply by using the share link on your podcast player. And if you want to learn more about the MedTech Leaders community, go to medtechleaders.net. By the way, some of you participated in the offer to join the MedTech Leaders community in February and March. This has resulted in the promised matched contribution to herhealtheq.org. Again, that's herhealtheq.org. Thank you very much. The money will go to help women in the third world get access to critical medical instrumentation. Well, now it's time to get together with Moshe and learn more about artificial intelligence and med tech. Moshe, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. It's really great to have you here um, to learn a lot more about deep learning, artificial intelligence, how it works in med tech. Thanks so much, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to talk to you, as always. Oh, this will be very interesting. So tell us a little bit about who you are in your position and what your company does. Sure. So I'm uh, Moshe Staffer, and I'm the U.S. CEO of RSIP Vision. Uh, we're a computer vision company. We specialize in creating uh, uh, image processing solutions for medical devices and for medical uh, applications. The company's been around for uh, quite a while. We've served in uh, many different roles, originally from a technical background. So I started out in R&D, uh, doing research, doing uh, development of uh, medical computer vision solutions, from the research and inception stage all the way uh, to production and to the clinical stages. Today, I'm in a management role and in a sort of translational role. In, in other words, in other words uh, being the bridge between what our company can do and what we're capable of, of uh, building up technologically uh, and the needs of the medical uh, device industry with which we work in the U.S. And so just to be clear, and I know you've sort of already said it, but if I'm a med tech company 
And I know that I'm, I need to be working in an area that in, involves artificial intelligence, uh, deep learning, machine learning, or whatever, and I needed some assistance. Mm -hmm. It's you and your team that I could go to to get that assistance. Yeah, there, there are different ways that that could happen, right? So uh, sometimes, you know, there, there's a med tech company, maybe they have some software and they want to do some automated analysis of images. And maybe, uh, you know, they just don't have the, the resources or the team uh, in-house and they come to us, they ask us uh, to build things up. That, that was the way we work uh, over the years. That's sort of historically the way our company has operated. More and more over the past uh, years, we've been doing things the other way around as well, right? So because of all the experience and, and tribal knowledge and, and, you know, code foundations and, and all the other things that have been built up uh, in the company after doing so many of these uh, projects, uh, we started moving more toward a, a product and toward a module-based methodology, which means that we uh, initiate certain solutions in-house in our company based on our wide understanding of the needs of the industry. And then we come to the industry and we offer them these uh, solutions. I can give you some uh, more examples maybe uh, uh, later on in the podcast. Sounds good. Okay, excellent. Just mm -hmm. tell me a story about the company and or its products and how how the the technology that you guys have developed may have benefited, you know, whether it's a, a another tech company or whether it's you know involves a patient. Just tell me tell me a story, just to get people sort of uh, appreciate a little bit more what you do. Okay, I thought one from a few years ago. Uh, actually, we had a client who was building up a navigation bronchoscopy uh, solutions. In a navigation bronchoscopy, uh, the patient has some suspicious lesion. Uh, in the lungs, it may be at a very difficult to reach uh, area. And the endoscopist, in order to reach and to biopsy that lesion, needs to navigate through the airway tree, right? So uh, it's this very convoluted tree. You sort of need a GPS, right? You need to go straight, and then there's a split. You need to make a right turn or a left turn. There are many uh, image uh, uh, analysis and image processing needs to, to make this work. Uh, one of them is planning. So the first step is to plan uh, this path, to plan a path, to plan a way to get somewhere. You need a map, right? So you need a 3D map of the airways uh, of this patient. Now, if you look at the academic uh, research uh, uh, for many, many years uh, before the deep learning era, there were many, many uh, ways people tried to attack and to solve this problem, very simple-minded, uh, sort of a, a region growing, like paint, paint, paint bucket kind of uh, solutions, uh, very uh, mathematically advanced solutions, trying to come up with uh, formulas for filters that found the exact properties of the image uh, that look like uh, these airway, these parts of the airway tree, uh, which are kind of hard to see, especially when they get small. Um, we also had a project uh, in this field. Again, this was before uh, sort of a deep learning became uh, as effective as it is today, before there were data sets to even really do uh, neural networks. Neural networks were still like a, a backwater of a computer vision. We also came up with a solution. Uh, you know, we, we did some literature research. We implement a classical computer vision solution. It worked okay, which means it worked in about 90% of the cases. Okay. Okay, so if it works in 90% of the cases, it means in 10% of the cases, somebody needs to go through the CT scan and go through each and every single uh, voxel of the CT scan and build manually a model of the airway tree, right? Now that 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 involves that that's that's not going to cut it for uh, a device because that that puts a huge friction into the whole procedure, right? So it, it introduces uh, costs into this planning stage. It introduces a delay, right? So the patient gets the CT, and then uh, somebody needs to create this map before planning can take place. 
So, so you know, everybody was uh, okay. The client worked on this a few more years. And then I think uh, maybe 2014 or 2015, you know, we, we started to see that uh, uh, machine learning is actually getting effective at solving these problems, more effective than the handcrafted solutions. Uh, it took us some time to, to believe in this, right? Because we all knew that neural networks had been around uh, for a long time. Everybody thought it was this kind of a black box, this kind of brute force approach where you have a huge, you know, a huge matrix and another huge matrix, and you try to by brute force uh, feed answers to the computer and hope the computer finds uh, the solution. But uh, one uh, very uh, smart guy, or uh, maybe you can say one very uh, lazy guy in our com- in our company, said, you know, I've read some papers. I've seen people people have been doing things with uh, deep learning, you know, in two D images and simple images, ImageNet, whatever. Uh, that that just are you know much more effective. You know, I want to try out this tool on this three D medical uh, problem on this. Uh, you know, heavy data sets. And lo and behold, you know, after a couple months of uh, experimentation, it worked. It worked much better than uh, the previous uh, solution. Uh, we came back to the client. Uh, They're very happy. And today, uh, this module is used already for thousands of cases. You know, this uh, partner took it to, to FDA approval and all that. And it's being used uh, on a daily basis uh, to plan navigation bronchoscopies and hopefully, you know, uh, to benefit these patients and to be able to benefit them efficiently. And, and of course, you know, early detection is, is so critical in cancer care. So uh, this, these types of uh, solutions are sort of one, one great piece of that, you know, overall puzzle of early detection of, uh, of cancer. Wow. And so in, in this case, uh, we might talk about regulatory more later, but in this particular case, where you apply deep learning and artificial intelligence to this, this type of imaging, are you constantly updating it as you get more data or is the company updating it as they get more data? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So ideally, right, many times these, these medical devices, and we, we've spoken about this, are, are a kind of a conduit for data, right, for training data, because, you know, if, if they're actually being used, it means that there is some access uh, to patient data, sometimes uh, with possibility to get consent uh, for research and for use for retraining. So ideally, we would want you know, to leverage all this data uh, and to retrain. Mm-hmm. Now, in practice, these kind of uh, constantly retraining systems, uh, which I think are in pretty wide use in industry by now, you know, in inspection, that kind of thing. For medical, this is very complicated because if you have a system uh, that's constantly training, how do you validate that? How do you create a process, you know, to verify that this constantly training system uh, is, you know, not, not going off the rails? Uh, and the FDA did is is doing a lot of work on, on building up those processes. So the regulatory approval is not only going to be for the software itself, but it's going to be for the whole process around that software, for the whole company actually that's managing that process. Uh, but th- this is very complicated. Uh, I, I hope eventually we get there. But in, in today's era, uh, trying to do that usually is going to have a pretty significant uh, negative impact on, on your time to market just to get all that approved. Uh, and there are much simpler ways of doing this. In, in the case of this airway segmentation, we found we need about 1,000 CT scans uh, in order to get a super robust solution, like an extremely robust solution. I'm talking you know, less than 1%, uh, maybe less than a tenth of a percent uh, of failures. So this was, this was uh, uh, good enough, right? The clinician still has to take a look to see that he's not one of those 1,000 cases because you know, it's going to happen eventually, right? There are thousands of cases, it will happen. So somebody needs to take a look at this result for a split second, uh, but this is good enough. Uh, and that's what's deployed in production. Now, more and more data is of course always being uh, collected. So you simply, you know, after a year or two years, you do a version 2.0, you retrain, you put it through the whole process, the whole regulatory process, the whole validation process, at least from our point of view, 
uh, as a technology uh, provider in this case that you did before, and you just do a discrete release. It's much simpler. I think in, in the next few years, this is still going to be the way to go for medical device. Yeah, and I think it probably depends on the nature of the imaging and the and the place that you're imaging and and how much improvement you can get. But if you're already doing so well with a particular device, uh, you know, to think you're going to upgrade every quarter, every six months is sort of crazy. You know, it would be about every year or two, I can imagine. Yeah, the, there definitely are diminishing returns, right? You may need to double or quadruple your data set just to get a few, you know, tenths of a percent uh, right. in this kind of case or a few percent. It still may be worth it in the medical case, right? Just to, to bring down that that uh, uh, failure rate even lower or to get, you know, higher uh, uh, reliability or maybe to be able to trust the system even more, you know, to take the human a bit more out of the loop. So these fractions of, uh, of improvement in some cases uh, can be important. They can make uh, the solution useful in ways it was not useful before. So it might be worth it. Again, the right way to do it is still uh, uh, these uh, discrete versions and not this kind of uh, continuous learning, which is, you know, going to give you this very, very incremental improvement uh, at the, you know, at the cost of, uh, of stability and of the need to, to watch this thing all the time. Okay. So that, that's a great introduction to what we're talking about. So a lot of people that are listening in today are probably thinking, well, how does somebody end up doing what you do? So let's just talk a little bit about your background, you know, about how you got involved in computers and deep learning and so on. You know, go back to when you were a kid. Tell me what influenced you uh, to be where you are today. Yeah, I I like the way you phrase that question, uh, actually, right? I'll I'll talk about myself, but actually, yeah, in our company also, we have, have, you know, people from a variety of backgrounds and there, there really are many different answers. So that question you asked when you ask it in that sort of uh, more general way. Yeah. So about me. So I, I, uh, I grew up in a family of uh, scientists. Uh, my parents are, are both scientists. My dad's a physicist. My, my mother's a computer science. So, you know, that, that makes things uh, easier, right? It, it creates opportunity. Or I think in some, some sort of a community paper, once uh, some friend of my parents visited us for a meal, they were, they were just friends. What happened? I think the, the soda bottle fizzed up. Right. So it was <laughs> yep. like this embarrassing situation, right? It was like, you know, it was it was too fizzy and somebody tried to open it and it, you know, it fizzed up and everybody had a laugh. And then, you know, that just naturally sort of segued into this whole discussion of why why is it fizzing up? You know, what's happening here with the pressure and 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 the the CO2 and how it's expanding, et cetera. And they wrote a whole article about that. So so yeah, this science being natural part of life uh was always uh, very natural for me. Uh, that that's really a benefit. I think it's really important, you know, for young people of, of all backgrounds to be exposed uh, just to science and, you know, to get curious about the world and to have the, the resources and the surroundings that, you know, uh, give them that, that opportunity. I think, you know, even small experiences in a kid's life can have a big, big effect there, you know, a school trip to a planetarium or, or whatever can, can really uh, pique someone's curiosity yeah, and uh, you know, I was one of those nerdy kids. I liked uh, programming uh, on an Apple II and on a <laughs> IBM PCAT and all those kind of computers. So yeah, it it really was something uh, I grew up with. Started out in uh, neuroscience, uh, being very uh, curious about the brain. After a few years uh, in that field in academia, I sort of felt that I would like to do something a bit more uh, practical, like to apply sort of the scientific and mathematical uh, skills to something that that's just, you know, a bit more, more applied, something, you know, you can, you can get your hands on 
there was a medical computer vision group in the university where, where I was doing uh, the graduate studies. Uh, and I found, found my way there through there or in parallel to that, find, found my way to RSIP, which was doing that kind of work uh, in industry, right? So the real world. Yeah, that was uh, obviously, you know, a different pace and, and a different different kind of satisfaction as well, right? Because, uh, you know, you're, you're not doing open-ended research like uh, in academia, but but you're really trying to do something effective and, and uh, efficient. And, you know, when, when that works, that's also uh, uh, quite satisfying. Yeah, and then one thing uh, leads to another, right? So working as a team and leading a team and recruiting the team and, you know, advising those who are leading teams, in multiple aspects of their work, right? So, so getting to know, you know, the technical aspects, but getting to know the human aspects of what it means to, to run a project and, and the communication aspects, right? Again, those translational aspects of, you know, how do you explain what this bunch of uh, computer uh, uh, geeks is doing to, you know, your, your uh, a medical device executive or to a hardware guy fr- from the client side who, you know, needs to have some understanding of how this works Right in 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 a way that's not overly technical, but also needs to understand you know what what it's doing for them or what need uh, the solution is filling and going the other way around. Right, understanding uh, what the needs of a particular product are and where the technology at its current state uh, has good potential to help. What kind of experience did you have when you were transitioning from academia into business? <laughs> so yeah, the transition from academia to industry was was pretty natural right because again i started out in r&d so so you're doing similar work you're programming or you're or you know developing a, a, some sort of a creative algorithm to to solve some some kind of image processing uh, solution you know uh, in classical image processing it was sort of getting a visual understanding of 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 the image understanding what i'm looking for in this image if i'm looking for a circle right what, how do I know really myself if something is an edge or something is just noise and then trying to translate that into a mathematical formulation or into an algorithm uh, later on, of course, uh, uh, the more machine learning based approaches. Yeah, I mean, the, the business part comes comes later, at least uh, came later uh, for me. Right. So started out on the technological side and then that that sort of uh, uh, moves to a natural progression uh, to the business side as you sort of tried to be of benefit to more and more uh, things that are going on, right? So you're doing less, less and less of the work, work yourself and, and you're more uh, sort of uh, connecting the dots and connecting the right teams to the right needs. So you had to be, when you're on the, on the, more on the technical side, actually handling the tasks, you were observing the management side of how the company was led and how the company should be led. You were learning while you were doing it at, at, at the, uh, on the technical side. So I imagine that obviously you were a good learner because you ended up being the leader of the company. Yeah, well, it's it's also sort of a matter of, of curiosity and, and and we try and, and of responsibility as well. And we 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 try to create this kind of culture inside of our company as well, right? So uh, uh, somebody comes in and, and they get responsive they get responsibility and, and independence pretty quickly. You know, when when you let somebody feel that they you know, uh, have ownership of what they're doing, that they have freedom to make uh, certain decisions within uh, their task. And, you know, they, they can be proud of what they've, what they've done. Uh, then naturally, you know, they, they're probably going to become curious of, you know, wh- what should I be doing? What's really going to meet uh, the need? What's the most effective way to solve this problem? And the next question is, what's the most effective problem to solve? And to sort of choose the right problems, right? That's, that's the next step in that. 
and to know what not to do also, right? Right. So that, that, that sort of gets you thinking of the managerial aspect of things, right? What, what cost-benefit analysis, you know, what problem should you be trying to solve? What's important? What's less important? What's the effort? What's, you know, the difficulty uh, technologically uh, to solve each problem? Uh, yeah. Okay. And then, and then how many employees does RSIP have? Yeah, we're about 60 people. Uh, okay. now, and that's uh, more or less evenly split between uh, R&D and between, uh, I'd call it clinical data and uh, business, right? So we have a pretty big data team, which means uh, uh, teams creating the ground truth. Again, uh, most things uh, these days are machine learning based, a lot of supervised learning. So uh, for, for, for a typical piece of functionality, you gather a data set and say you need to uh, annotate that data set to teach the computer, right? So you need to annotate where a heart chamber is in an image or to annotate the size of a heart chamber uh, in an image or to annotate uh, uh, whether an image uh, of an endoscopy is uh, displaying a high level of abnormality or a low, low, low level of abnormality, right? Some companies try to outsource that annotation, you know, uh, send it to other companies. We like to do this in-house. Uh, almost in all cases these days, because medical image annotation is not so easy to do, and you really want control of that process. So uh, we we have those teams uh, in the company and uh, medical advisors and medical advisors helping both you know the ground truth aspect, uh, but also uh, helping you know the translational aspect, right? So it's very helpful uh, to have whatever to have a general surgeon on the call uh, with a surgical uh, robotics company it gives you a much better understanding of you know uh, of the user needs. Sure. And then um, where are you located in the world? So the company is based in Israel. Uh-huh. We have two R&D centers, one in Jerusalem, one in Tel Aviv. But but again, our, our market's uh, in the U.S., uh, I'd say 95% of it. So, you know, m- most of the management of the company is uh, back and forth quite often. I just come back, came back from a conference and a couple of my colleagues also from the company management are, are at ACC now, the American Cardiological Society. Okay, so we know a little bit more about the company. One of the things that you said when we were, when you and I were talking and preparing for this, is you said that it's all about the images. So tell me a little bit more about that. Tell us, tell the listeners a little bit more about it's all about the images when it comes to what you're trying to work with and what you're trying to accomplish. No, I wouldn't say it's it's all about the images because. Sometimes we do use uh, other types of data, but I'd say it's 90% uh, about the images. What, what I mean by that is that some, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, what, what's your superpower as a company, right? So, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't think we have, uh, we're, we're superheroes necessarily. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I can answer that question all that all that sharply, but, but nevertheless, so we specialize in, in medical computer vision solutions, which means we work in many different types of medical images. We work in, uh, uh, you know, CT scans and, and uh, ultrasound and surgical video. We work across different uh, uh, medical modalities, uh, orthopedics, cardiology, uh, endoscopy, etc. cetera. Uh, for us, again, uh, as sort of a techie company or as a company that's pretty heavy uh, on the R&D side, uh, there are many commonalities between these uh, problems. I'll give you an example. Like th- these days, we we don't really do any non-medical work, uh, but five years ago, we still did. We had a project for a startup company involving tennis games, right? So this guy had a startup, he had an idea, I want to do automated uh, scoring for tennis games, right? 
So, uh, yeah, and he had some uh, tennis videos, a few hundred of them maybe. Um, we, we sort of whipped up a scoring system uh, there to, to count the points and to know when the match was on and when the match was off, uh, to detect different types of, uh, of uh, swings, that sort of thing. It was like the first time I think we had done video analysis with a relatively small data set. Uh, so that was new for us, figuring out sort of how how to get a, a, a good a good result or a decent result with, you know, not all that much training data. You know, the, the, we, we had limited resources in terms of labeling the points in these uh, tennis matches. Yeah, it was very nice. And then two months later, you know, company comes to us with a medical video. I won't say what type of medical video or, or which company. They said, you know, uh, we have this medical video and we want to, uh, all kinds of things are happening uh, during this procedure. And we want to detect whatever, three types of events within this procedure in which many different things are happening. We said, yeah, sure. It's a tennis game. So we, we, we you know, took, uh, took the experience gained from there and, and we, we solved this problem. Yeah. So I don't remember exactly how I got, oh, because yes, it's all about the images, right? So yeah, for, for us, you know, there are common, common aspects between uh, all of these different applications. So we uh, translate between them. We talked about what the low-hanging fruit was in terms of applying artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. and deep learning, machine learning to uh, the use of images and so on. Yeah, so we we uh, we focus on uh, interventional applications or medical device applications, and and generally we split this up into three areas: uh, planning, navigation, and analytics. The low hanging fruit many times is in planning, right? Because okay, uh, you you have a a, a static image, say uh, of a, a joint of the bones of a joint. Uh, you want to automate the, the planning process, right? So uh, you, you automatically uh, segment the bones. You want to uh, create a 3D model of the bones. For, for many companies, this is still a, a manual process. It's still a, an expensive process. Uh, we can automate that uh, using uh, deep learning. The next step is to detect, detect uh, landmarks on the bones, and then to apply various formulas uh, to plan, say, the placement uh, of an implant. So uh, wh- why do I say this is low-hanging fruit? To do this accurately and to do this as well as a professional case planner or better. Uh, it takes some work, it takes quite a bit of data. Uh, you have to know how to validate it uh, correctly, uh, you know, to understand the edge cases, uh, et cetera. It's still a low hanging fruit in the sense of, uh, in the applicative sense, right? So because you're in a planning situation, you know, you, you have, you have a, a human in the loop, they take a look at it, they say it's okay, uh, and you're ready to go, right? So uh, the regulatory side of this type of planning solution is is relatively straightforward, right? You have some sort of approval stage, and then you can just say, okay, I had a manual planning process. There had to be some sort of, usually there had to be some sort of manual planning process in place before, because otherwise the surgery wouldn't have gotten planned. You have a manual planning process. I can still do all this, but the computer is recommending. I'm going to recommend, I'm going to recommend the entire plan you know, auto- automatically, I'm going to automatically segment the image, and I'm going to show you everything. If you want, you can still plan manually. So you cut down maybe a few hours of this process. But from the regulatory's point, uh, from the regulator's point of view, you haven't really done anything, right? You haven't uh, tried to replace anybody, you haven't done done anything uh, uh, with any risk in it, because you're still in this sort of uh, uh, static situation. The intra-op uh, uh, applications can sometimes be uh, framed in this way, uh, but it gets more complicated, right? Because things are 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 streaming and and they're live, and and uh, you're trying to reduce uh, uh, the cognitive load on the surgeon. But but what does that really mean, right? You know, uh, if you're saving a lot of time, it means they have to trust the system because they're not spending that time to make the decision themselves. Themselves, 
so that, that becomes more stringent uh, a lot of times uh, from the regulatory point of view. So on, on the navigating side, I mean, excuse mm-hmm. me, the surgical planning side, mm-hmm. this is interesting. So this is a situation where planning is not necessarily part of the product. That's not the implant itself. Let's say it's planning for an implant procedure. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. planning isn't really the implant, but it's an important part of making sure the implant is successfully placed and that yep. you have both a happy patient, a happy uh, surgeon, a good outcome, and so on and so forth. So I, I think this is very mm-hmm. interesting. So this is where deep learning or artificial intelligence isn't necessarily applied to uh, directly to the product itself, but is an important part of the total process of the product being used. Yeah, that, that's that's a very uh, interesting point and also uh, interesting to think about on the business side of things, right? So, yeah. So a lot of the, the implant companies, a lot of the orthopedics companies and the, the spine companies, they, they started off as, you know, basically companies that were selling, uh, uh, and you could say that about, I think, some of the other medical device companies as well, companies that are selling screws or companies that are selling, you know, pieces of metal, they're selling hardware, they're selling prosthetics, uh, or, you know, selling uh, uh, catheters. But that that physical and and maybe their business model is is also based on this uh, this some disposable or some particular piece of hardware uh, that's reimbursed. Uh, that's that's how they're making money, right? But but around this hardware, around this physical hardware, there's an entire ecosystem. From the implant company's point of view, maybe that's a marketing tool, right? That's that's a tool to get the surgeon to want to use their implants because they're not selling just you know a physical device. They're selling an, an entire solution. They're selling maybe a way to perform uh, a particular type of uh, surgery in a more effective way. Uh, they're selling, you know, a, a, an entire process that will want the surgeon to use uh, their products, right? And we're supporting that ecosystem uh, by making it more efficient and making it more effective. Uh, and again, a lot of the effectiveness can be gained by doing the procedure more accurate, more accurately. How do you support accuracy? You need uh, images, you need computerized guidance, you need uh, this sort of uh, uh, precision uh, solutions that that AI uh, uh, can help enhance. Yeah, it's part of the workflow, which is part which has become um, something that a lot of the the doctors that I've talked to in this series on artificial intelligence have talked about improving workflows using um, artificial intelligence, and that's what we're talking about. You know, surgical planning, which is part of the workflow. I, I just never until you and I talked about it just now. It never occurred to me that. You know, we're talking about applying artificial intelligence outside the direct product, but where it would have such a, it could have a really big impl- uh, impact on the product. And then you talked about the two other areas. I think you said, um, so there's planning, there's navigation, and there's analytics, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So so analytics is sort of a, a, a wider area. I think uh, going forward, this is going to become uh, very interesting, right? So trying to predict what type of procedure is the better fit uh, for which patients, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to uh, gather, to, to use all the data that's being gathered in an effective way, right? Because a, a lot of the functionalities like we talked about on planning, uh, the, these are things a person can do. It will just take them take them a, lo- a lot of time, right? Or maybe it's it's not reproducible because each person will do it uh, a little bit different. So you, so you yep. get something reproducible when you uh, automate uh, these stages, saving time. But that that's sort of, you know, helping a lot, a lot of times 
technology, that's what technology is doing for us, right? Not, not only in, in computing, it's doing the heavy lifting for us, right? It's, you know, but, but we're just using sort of, we're using, you know, uh, uh, whatever, the internal combustion engine to do heavy lifting for us. And then we're using the computer chip to do heavy lifting for us by just, you know, uh, using it as a gigantic calculator. And now we're using AI to do the heavy cognitive lifting for us, right? To, to do these uh, sort of cognitive labor intensive uh, tasks automatically. Now, now analytics, leveraging, you know, data, maybe from thousands of cases and trying to find new insights in this data, maybe insights, not just trying to reproduce what a person can do, but looking for, uh, you know, uh, for features and for patterns uh, that may not have been discovered at all uh, without, you know, the, the compute capability that AI is giving us. Right. So that that's uh, and, and no, there, there are companies in other fields uh, like uh, drug discovery that are that are also doing uh, trying to do this type of thing. And I think also for, for medical devices or for as we discussed this ecosystem around medical devices and around surgeries and around interventions, you know, do, doing doing uh, analytics, trying to uh, discover new insights uh, th- this can be very interesting going forward. Uh, again, not not only using images, right? There's uh, lots of other uh, uh, data or datums. Uh, that that should be used for this. Absolutely. And your team specializes, I believe you told me, in orthopedics and endoscopy. Um, yeah. Why does it seem like you've leaned that direction? Well, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> and the reason yeah. I ask that, the reason I ask that is that I, I know on your website, <laughs> on your website, you indicate that you could work in a lot of other areas too. Yeah. I'm, sure you, I'm sure you could. Uh-huh. But okay. when we talk about images, you know, the first, I spent most of my career in ophthalmology. So the first mm-hmm. thing I think about is all those images of the retina and the eye and different mm-hmm. parts of the eye. Sure. And then you have radiology and so on. Mm-hmm. But here you are, you know, working more in orthopedics and endoscopy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So first of all, uh, sort of as we've uh, advanced uh, as a company, as we've become more and more uh, specifically focused, uh, we realize that within medical, we should also be focusing on, on specific uh, application areas. So yeah, we, we have, you know, uh, consulting uh, physicians uh, across the field. We have a urologist and cardiologist and, and, and people from all, all kinds of other disciplines. But, but as we're moving from these kind of uh, uh, services or solving other people's problems uh, type of business to to a model where we uh, initiate uh, you know various uh, solutions and and initiate various mini startups I'd say within the company uh, to yep. develop new technologies we we you know realized as a company we need to become uh, much more focused and and develop a specific expertise for specific medical fields right uh, again it is all about the images and and the technology uh, can be similar. Uh, but if we really want to offer uh, added value beyond this and, and to sort of keep a, keep a moving forward, we need to narrow our focus. Orthopedics and endoscopy uh, specifically have been the most effective for us uh, business-wise, I would say. So yeah, there, there's uh, infinite uh, computer vision challenges in, in ophthalmology, uh, many different imaging modalities. Just uh, business-wise, we found it, it was uh, harder to work in this area. Similar digital, digital pathology is also a very big field. But the business there sort of works a little bit differently. Yeah, it, it was sort of less less effective uh, uh, for our model. So just business-wise, in terms of the need, I'd say, in the medical device industry itself for AI capabilities, for specialized AI capabilities, that that was sort of the most the most pronounced in in those two fields. Okay. And now that you're being more proactive instead of reactive, and I'd say yeah. reactive, reacting to the need of a customer. You're being more proactive in, in terms of 
seeing uh, solutions that you can offer, then you can actually reach out to potential partners um, and offer them a solution that you see mm-hmm. for one of the things that they're involved in that they just haven't seen yet. Um, that must be interesting. Have you ever have you ever worked with a company that really had not applied? I shouldn't say worked with a company. Have you ever approached a company that had not applied deep learning or artificial intelligence to um, any part of the product, whether it was the product directly or whether it was the the planning, the surgical planning related to the product? Have you ever approached a, a company like this and said, we've got something that we think is going to, uh, your customers are going to like, and it's going to make your life a lot easier and help you build up market share. Mm-hmm. What, what has their reaction been? I mean, somebody that doesn't have a lot of experience in AI, what kind of reaction do you get? Yeah, de- definitely. We, we've done this. This happens more often than not, I would uh-huh. say. Now, m- most of these companies, you know, have, have uh, openness to this because mo- most of them are sort of looking for how they can, you know, uh, take their uh, company into the new era, or you know, stay stay at pace of, of of the technology and and reap the benefits. They don't always know what they should be doing or what they can be utilizing, right? So usually the there there is a a, a lot of uh, interest, and there's especially a lot of int- especially a lot of interest when you know we can sort of uh, share with them specifically what can be done for their field or what we have to offer. I wouldn't say that you meet a lot of resistance. The challenge is when you work with a company that has less of a software team in-house, right? So even if if a company's got a software team, they don't have an AI team, uh, that's fine, right? So you know we we will plug in to their software and we'll figure out how to have the two pieces of software talk to each other. And and you've got two two uh, factors that speak the same language. Uh, sometimes you you end up working with a company that really doesn't have much of software at all. Right, they're 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 a hardware company. Their hardware is maybe yeah. they, they've got a camera, or their hardware is connecting to a camera that was maybe made by a third party, and and that's it. But they've got an application. They're 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 doing some specific uh, procedure and say, yeah, our our physicians would love if we could show them during the procedure while they're viewing the video. They would love if we could show them this type of guidance during the intervention. Right. So then it's very important to realize this early on. Right. What is the software capability of your partner and and to sort of you know, uh, think very uh, uh, hard, hard how you can solve their problems for them, right? How you can ma- ma- make this work, which means you know that we we would take on uh, a bigger a bigger part of of the solution there, right? Because uh, plugging into an existing uh, medical device software is is much much easier than sort of building up your software's medical device from scratch. You just need to take this take this into account, both when you're planning, you know, uh, the collaboration and also understanding, you know, who, who you're talking to and, and how to explain things to them and, and uh, you know, and so forth. I've got to believe that sometimes you get incredible reactions from these uh, people that, be, that ultimately become a client. Yeah, th- there's another issue, which is, uh, you know, expectations management, right? So, yeah. so the, the, the more the guys you're talking to are, you know, e- either software people or, you know, maybe maybe they have internal uh, AI teams, but they're focused on, on one field. And then, you know, uh, they, they, they like what we have to offer in another field. But then generally, you know, people ask uh, uh, tougher questions and, and it's better, right? Because you, uh, uh, our side, we, we need to work less hard in expectations management because everybody understands sort of, you know, the challenges and understand, you know, uh, uh, what it means to get something to work. 
when when you talk to people from outside your field, then yeah, expectations management is is quite important. You really need to think think about this uh, uh, all the time. You know, not 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 to overpromise and not to overhype things because then you know everybody's very excited in the beginning, but then afterwards it's uh, it's harder for everybody involved. So yeah, you need to sort of show show the way forward and show show what you can do. Are there, are, there, are there any examples of collaborations that you can speak to where um, you're not in the middle of developing something that's top secret right now? <laughs> well, I, I can talk more about uh, products and and the things that we we've developed and that we're offering, right? So yeah, so sure. Developed in house, sure. So so we'll go back to uh, orthopedics now. One one of the needs in uh, in orthopedics is uh, as we said, uh, surgical planning. Right, people used to plan uh, joint replacements off off a physical X-ray. Right, they'd hang it up on the wall and and draw lines on on it and measure things. Uh, then it went to digital X-rays, uh, and now in some cases planning is done uh, in three-dimensional space. Right, so you get uh, uh, robotics or for patient patient-specific uh, devices, or sometimes uh, uh, just for standard joint replacement surgery. Uh, if you do planning in three-dimensional space, you can get physical measurements of things. You can predict the size of the implants that you need to bring into the OR, and that can save uh, a lot of money uh, because you don't need to bring a whole a whole closet full of, of, of equipment into the OR. Uh, the user can uh, plan things in a more precise manner, you know, using the real, real physical models of the anatomy. Uh, how do you get a 3D model of the anatomy? You do a CT scan, right? So yes, but this is problematic for many reasons, right? So it's more friction. You need to send the patient to a CT somewhere else. It takes time. You need to get that data uh, back to the uh, case planner or back to the uh, surgeon uh, who wants to see his plan, or maybe the surgeon would like to, uh, you know, interact with that plan uh, themselves. You need a whole piece of software. You need to get that image. Uh, it costs money. It costs radiation. Patient uh, uh, maybe doesn't want to undergo a CT. Uh, in the U.S., not going to be reimbursed in many cases. So we have uh, developed a way, and th- this is a problem, again, there have been, uh, you know, uh, there's plenty of literature on how people have been attacking this, trying to attack this problem uh, for many years. Uh, how do you reconstruct a 3D model of bones uh, from uh, plain film x-rays, right? So we're reconstructing uh, knee joints uh, from uh, two x-rays. We're reconstructing hip joints uh, from multiple x-rays. A CT scan is basically, you know, uh, equivalent to maybe a few hundreds of x-rays that are taken from many angles. Right. Uh, now, now, if you have only two angles, there's a lot less information there. On the other hand, you know you're looking at a knee, right? So there's information there, and and you know uh, a very experienced surgeon who looks at these two X-rays can really understand the 3D anatomy. Now, how do they do it? Because they have a model in their mind, they have a mental model of what a knee looks like, what the rest of the knee should look like based on these two projections. Uh, and we've quantified this. We've sort of taken that mental model and turned it into a mathematical model or an AI model. Uh, by by training uh, uh, our uh, our AI architecture uh, to learn how to reconstruct 3D models of uh, knee joints and of hip joints from multiple 2D X-rays. Again, very small number of X-rays. You know, we're we're uh, sort of uh, uh, very uh, actively you know uh, offering this solution and and uh, and taking it to, through uh, productization phases. I would say uh, we're hoping to take it to the FDA uh, uh, this year and to do pre-submission pretty soon. We're doing a, a clinical study. Uh, on the solution, we're you know assessing uh, the accuracy on very specific uh, areas that are needed for planning. We're, we're quite hopeful that uh, uh, this capability is going to open up 3D planning for a much wider uh, set of patients that would not undergo CT for all the reasons uh, I said. And and of course, you know, for for a company that adopts this technology, this increase this 
you know, potentially can really open up the market for them because suddenly, uh, you know, oh, ty- types of, of, of uh, treatments that require 3D planning are suddenly open uh, to all patients and don't require uh, this whole CT in the workflow. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So to be as enthusiastic as you sound like you are, you must have done already a, a fair amount of comparison of of your technology to actual CT scans to, yes. to, to know that you're spot on. Yes, yes. We've done quite a bit of that in, in simulations and, and in real data. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places where, um, I don't know, maybe not so much in the United States, but I'm thinking about other parts of the world where they just don't have CT scans. They can't afford it, where something like this would be very valuable. I mean, it'd be it'd be valuable even in this country, like you said, because you can eliminate that part of the planning or that part of the workflow or change it to the advantage of the patient and the surgeon. But I'm just thinking about um, other parts of the world where they don't have the technology we have. De- definitely, yeah. If if eventually this is a benefit, you know, in, in other in other parts of the world, then and, and uh, to people living in areas where really it's it's hard to get access to a CT scan, we would be thrilled. Again, in the U.S., technically, you know, you, you can get a CT scan uh, anywhere. Practically, because of just the the healthcare economics and and just the way this industry works, uh, that really doesn't happen uh, as often. Uh, uh, as it should, and the outlook is that it's not it's not going to happen. And, and besides the fact that this just makes the whole process uh, sort of a lot more more efficient, and many times that's that's more important than than you would think. If I were a patient, I'd be very happy not to have to undergo a CT. Right? Why should I be exposed to this radiation? I mean, especially if it's for a hip, but but uh, you know, more more close to the abdomen and to sensitive areas. But even for a knee, so so the radiation benefit is also uh, important. I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. So we talked about when a company is is talking about artificial intelligence and med tech in general, you had said first, do they need to use images? You know, where do they go from there? And second, you know, would be, is their medical device a conduit for data? So those would be the two areas where a med tech company could consider how their product fits into or takes advantage of artificial intelligence. Yes, yes, I, I can elaborate that on that a bit. So, so the planning examples I gave, right? Yeah. To do this kind of planning, you need uh, images, but you don't need Im- you don't need only the images. You need uh, uh, you need an understanding of that images. You need a three D model. You need uh, landmarks. You need measurements, etc. Uh, that that's that's a no brainer, right? You want to automate this uh, to the highest degree uh, possible. And sometimes uh, you really you can't really move forward uh, with your device without that uh, image processing uh, in place. The, the other the other sort of area where there's potential to to benefit from uh, AI and from automated image analysis is as you said is when the device itself uh, becomes a conduit for data right so it means that the initial product is 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 a device uh, but you're already thinking about how that uh, uh, device is a way to collect this data and how the product eventually is not just going to be you know the physical device but it's going to be the entire treatment and the entire treatment I mean, knowing how to select uh, the right type of treatment based on the data that has been uh, collecting. Or if, you know, you're talking about the surgical robotics uh, industry, a lot of these uh, uh, companies are thinking about, you know, uh, how to provide additional benefit uh, for surgeons, how to let surgeons do self-evaluation, how to let surgeons uh, get coaching, right? So there, there's the robot or, or there's uh, some sort of image management system uh, that's there in the OR 
but then that's just the first part of, uh, of the product. And, and actually the product is a SaaS or a, a whatever, a, a medical uh, training service or an entire ecosystem that eventually helps helps this group of surgeons become better surgeons uh, together. So it's good to think about things uh, much wider than just, I don't know, like give another uh, analogy, not, not only to think of things uh, like the military image processing area, right? Where you're, you're, you have a missile and you want the missile to hit the target uh, precisely, right? So you got to track the target, right? So there, there are a lot of applications like that too, right? You're tracking motion uh, in, a, in a surgery and, and you, you want right. to track a certain right. point of the anatomy and show where that is, right? So that's sort of the, the military metaphor, right? You want to hit your target. Uh, so there's a lot of that, but then there's also sort of, I don't know, maybe call it a textual analysis uh, a metaphor, right? So Amazon's trying to learn uh, you know, your habits so they can uh, understand what to sell to you, right? So, so uh, sorry, sorry for the negative metaphors. So now in, in the positive <laughs> world or the, in the world of medical where we're trying to benefit for patients, the analogy of that would be company X is uh, collecting a data set and it's uh, trying to understand, uh, you know, the behavior of surgeons, trying to understand the correlation between the behavior of these surgeons uh, to patient outcomes, maybe compare behaviors of, of different surgeons uh, and provide insights for those uh, surgeons or create a system. Uh, the knowledge of experienced surgeons can be made available to all surgeons. You train an AI on uh, expert annotated data, and then you're showing uh, them maybe what an expert surgeon would have shown. You're showing, showing each and every surgeon, you know, in, in your third world country to, to go back to the example of with the x-ray, you know, maybe a, a new uh, untrained surgeon, you're showing them uh, this information that's coming from thousands and thousands of cases uh, all over the world. So you're providing a whole uh, kind of ecosystem of uh, benefit. Or, or you're trying to understand where you're getting the best results and why you're getting the best results and be able to share that with people more broadly. So everybody gets the best result. Yep. Yeah. Which then benefits your product because more people are confident of your product. Okay. Any advice that you have just in the last couple of minutes, any advice you have for med tech professionals that are coming into this AI age and trying to understand it and, and make mm -hmm. sure that their company is not blindsided or left behind. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, say uh, take a physician, right? So there are the obvious things, right? To a physician, you know, uh, uh, understand uh, what, what uh, new AI technologies are uh, offering the discipline that you specialize in, right? That's, that's obvious. But then there's, I think uh, maybe uh, an even more interesting advice I would give uh, to a physician who's interested in, you know, understanding how AIs impact their, their profession uh, would be to ask yourself the other question, the, the question, ask this question the other way around, right? So ask yourself what you could, uh, so uh, you could even approach uh, AI companies or you'll probably eventually be approached by AI companies and they're going to be asking what, what, uh, what benefit you can bring to them. Right, so if you work with the, the companies that are actually uh, developing these technologies, and there are plenty of opportunities to do this, I think, uh, for uh, you know a physician who's who's interesting, who's uh, who's interested, then you know first of all, this is an opportunity for a physician to bring benefit, you know, not only by directly treat, treating patients or by doing research, but uh, by actually uh, you know influencing and and uh, and aiding the development of of, uh, of these new technologies. Uh, and obviously, in the process, you're going to learn a lot because from the questions that you're going to get, you're going to learn a lot about uh, about the technology itself. So, sure. yeah, that, that's another piece of advice I would give. So ask not what, what AI can do for you, but what you can do for AI. <laughs> there and, you and go. It'll, it'll, it'll come around. <laughs> 
Well, very good. Well, this has been real interesting and enlightening, and I really appreciate your time today that you spent with us. Moshe, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ted. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. At the end of our conversation, Moshe answered my question as if it had been asked of medical professionals, and it was a good answer. The answer for medtech professionals and companies is similar. First, look at where your product fits in the total ecosystem of the various treatments and care that it is involved in. Then ask, is it a major contributor to the outcome? For example, a hip implant would be the major contributor to the hip replacement procedure. There are a lot of things that contribute, so bear with me here. A certain instrument may not be the major contributor, but could be a significant contributor to the procedure's success. Monitoring devices may provide important surgical and post-surgical data. The very important persons that pull all of the action together are the surgeon and his or her team. Now, artificial intelligence may play many roles in this procedure and the workflow related to it. It may have determined the best surgical protocol for the team to follow. That is planning, and it could affect the instruments that are chosen. It may have found the best surgical route into the patient's hip depending on the patient's condition and the images provided to the team. That is navigation. AI may have helped select the best implant for this particular patient for the best results. That would be related to analytics. You can take this example, as crude as it may be for the moment, to any place in the hospital or ambulatory surgical care center where your products are used and think about how AI may impact the success of your product. Your product succeeds when outcomes improve. AI may be a path toward differentiation for you. Think about it. Thanks for spending time with me and Moshe today. We hope you learned something. Now go win your week.